Welcome to the podcast called Father Knows Best. This is a multi-series podcast talking about where we are today, where we're going, and what the world looks like tomorrow. Our interviewees will be people who have seen change, have started change, have enacted change, and even people who are thinking about change. It should be an exciting year, and I hope all of you who are listening will learn a lot. Hello, everybody. My name is George Okrepke. I'm a 55-year-old dad from Long Island, New York. Today, I'm going to talk about some of the changes I've seen in my own life, this incredible pandemic, and what I see post-pandemic, and how we're going to use repurpose and build a better society. I think we have an incredible opportunity going forward. So one of the things that I see, by the way, as a person who spent most of his career on Wall Street, just trying to make $1 off a trade off the next guy, the pandemic really woke me up. And it woke me up because I could not get to my office on Wall Street. The company I owned, which employed a dozen people, we couldn't get back together. And part of the power of Wall Street was a synergy of people working together. So we decided after a few months to close that company down. So it's given me a lot of time to think about what do we look like as a society post-pandemic? What's it going to feel like? What, what, what's going to happen? Who's going to make money? How are we going to repurpose all of these things we built over the last hundred years into things that help society? So I'm going to talk about two things that really resonate in my mind now that I'm sitting home reading, thinking, and trying to figure out the future. The first thing is how we live. And what we've seen in the pandemic is this mini-migration of human beings away from cities. Because cities were locked down. People didn't like to be locked down. So they went to more rural areas. That's the first thing. The second thing that we saw and kind of got became aware of is how polluted our our planet is. And a lot of the awareness came from Elon Musk, who talks about going to Mars and colonizing it. Well, I don't want to live on Mars. I'd rather live on Earth. So what do I have to do in the coming 50 years, I hope to live to be 100, to make our planet a better place? So the first thing we looked at was what are the two most driving factors of a healthy Earth? The first thing is our atmosphere and our carbon footprint. The second most important thing to the human race is our oceans, which take up two-thirds of the planet. So myself, along with a number of like-minded people, have decided to come up with a plan. And our plan is to build communities that consist of what we call smart homes. And those smart homes will disconnect from the grid. And it starts from the top, it starts from the roof. We're gonna use reusable tiles, solar tiles, and take advantage of that 60 megatons of energy that gets dropped on our planet every day by that beautiful orange globe in the sky called the sun. And use that to heat our homes, to start our cars, to play our stereos, to play our televisions and whatnot. So we're gonna clip one cable, right? 
That's the electric cable. Now we can keep the cable stable and we can send the energy back to the grid, but we could, we could remain uh, off the grid. So this smart home with, with a smart roof and with a battery storing energy is gonna be put into a smart community. And that smart community will be safe and secure. You know, one of the byproducts of the pandemic and all the money being spent, unfortunately our municipalities, our state and our government are fiscally bankrupt. So where you're paying a lot of taxes today, it'll only go higher. So with less jobs, less things to do, that becomes untenable. So by building a community only a few hours north and what we would consider to be rural today, um, and most people are working from home anyways. You know, we're going to build a home that's smart. So when I say a smart home, we started with the roof. The second thing that we do is reusable water. Um, and when I say reusable water, very simple. You know, when it rains, water runs into your gutter and then just runs into the street and then runs into the catch basin and goes into the lake or the ocean. You know, what we're going to do is build a cistern that sits underneath the, the home that collects the water. So the next time you want to water your grass, you're actually reusing water. The third thing is entertainment, right? We need to be entertained. And also we need to communicate with the world. Well, for the last 50 years, cables had a monopoly on us and they charged an exorbitant fee. We're gonna clip that cable and we're gonna connect to Telesat, right? We're gonna connect to the low orbit satellites that are out there. There's a number of companies, including Tesla, that are gonna offer internet at 100 megabits per second. Just the equivalent we get from cable at a fraction of the cost with no cables to your home with a, with a saucer pan the size of a, di a dinner plate. So now we've clipped the electric, we've, we've clipped cable, waters, we're, we're collecting water. And here's one little crazy little fact. You know, I went outside the other day and I held a temperature gauge next to my dryer duct where my dryer blows out hot air and it reached 90 degrees and all that's heating the outside so why don't i just redirect that heat into a closed piping system that runs underneath my floors and now i have warm floors if i live in a cold area my warm my floors are warm or even if i live in a cold area a hot area my, my my floors are warm so there's so many things that we could do so much energy that's being wasted you know, we have so many windows in our home. And all windows do, by the way, is a transference of heat from your home to the outside with no benefit to anyone. So when you walk into the home, you're going to have a hub, a hub, which is going to have all these, it's going to look like an iPod. And all the gooey and all the WYSIWYG stuff and all the geeky stuff is hidden from you. Uh, you're going to click lights on, you're going to click power on, power off. The house will be filled with sensors. When you leave a room, lights will be off. And all this will be built and ready for you to move into. And one of the, all reusable wood, all reusable asphalt, nothing new. So when you think about historically, another time that this happened was in the mid 40s when Levitt built Levittown, Long Island. And what he did was buy a 10,000 acre potato farm and built 17,000 homes. It allowed so many people to move from the city out to the suburbs and actually own a home. 
And we know that to rebuild our economy, the biggest part of it is homeownership. That's a fact, just a fact. So homeownership. The second piece of it is allowing minorities in our country to actually have homeownership. And I believe that they should have an extra advantage where if they keep their payments going, that they could pass it down another generation. Multi-generation passive wealth is the reason why people are wealthy today and the reason why minorities are suffering. So think of a planned community with a giant wall around it, just like they do in Florida, if you ever drive through Florida or South Carolina, planned communities. But every house inside there will be smart. And the government, the U.S. government, will reward every homeowner with a carbon credit. And a carbon credit looks like a stock certificate. And what that stock certificate happens is it trades. Because some people who are polluting need to buy those to offset their pollution. So it's actually a very interesting market that lowers the carbon footprint. So we talked about the first thing, how we live post-pandemic. I think there's going to be a massive migration. And our goal as a company is to build 50,000 homes in the next five years. 50,000. And that's just the beginning. And we're going to not do it directly. We're going to do it with local experts. All we're going to provide those local experts with, builders, is the blueprint and the IP to do it. And the way we get paid as a company is we have a licensing agreement. So these will go up in Iowa, they'll go up in South Carolina, they're going to go up in places where we've been trying to figure out for the last 100 years, how do we develop these rural areas who are depressed? You know, Western Pennsylvania, Northern New York, very depressed. And, and oh, by the way, there's some of the most beautiful areas of the country, lakes, rivers. How about being 10 minutes away from a great ski mountain? and ski all winter long. That's what you can do in upstate. One hour north of New York City. You don't need to be living in Queens in a 16-story apartment building. You can have your own home. So first part is that carbon footprint. The second piece of it is our oceans. Now, our oceans take up two-thirds of the planet, and it feeds us also. And it's in a lot of trouble right now. So how do you fix the oceans? Well, our idea... There are going to be 6,500 malls in the United States, which I think will be empty. I don't think we'll ever see 10,000 people on a Saturday afternoon walking to the mall, looking at windows. Um, I don't think we'll ever see 500 people in a movie theater again, coughing and sneezing, watching a movie. So we have a lot of real estate to be repurposed. Now, some of it, I think, should be leveled and turned into parks and trees because they're really not needed. But for some of them that are built pur purposely, my idea is to build aquariums. And, I th and there's enough maritime study programs in the United States where in conjunction with universities and the entertainment of going to an aquarium, uh, we could change in the next 20 years how we view our oceans, the health of our oceans, and how it all comes out. So. All of a sudden, home, Earth, becomes a really interesting place to live again. And 
what Elon's doing on Mars and what he's learning, by the way, by colonizing Mars and figuring that out combined could create a better Earth for all of us. Climate change. You know, the, all this stuff is driving climate change. I mean, be, we need to educate people. And part of the education comes from going to an aquarium, you know, learning about it. Part of it goes through entertainment, right? Like, and I think entertainment changes. You know, and in fact, I suggest all of you to subscribe to a channel on YouTube called Dust, D-U-S-T. And Dust is a thousand videos created by the best producers in Hollywood talking about science fiction at the top level, but really talking about what the future looks like on the planet Earth. Whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's machine learning, whether it's, it's exploring the universe, uh, uh, it's worth the time. And I think entertainment changes also. Again, 500 people aren't going to the movie theater. They're going to be entertained either in smaller venues, which you reserve for your family and your friends, which is kind of cool. You know, the size of McDonald's could be running movies where you could call up and say, I'd like to bring my 15 best friends to watch that movie in surround sound in a big screen. So there's so many things that we could do in the future. And the other thing is the vaccine that we just created. And incredibly, we created a vaccine in five months. And the RNA technology will not only attack COVID-19, but it'll attack cancer, diabetes, all the things that kill us prematurely. So you're going to see in an unbelievable amount of technology around medicine come out. And that leaves one other issue. You know, we've lived under 50 years of government bureaucracy, um, stifling technology, people who don't even understand the technology, stopping advancement. Well, for once, you know, Donald Trump, whether you like him or not, lifted all of the restrictions and allowed science to go crazy and figure stuff out. And they did it. Now, I want to make one point. As we live longer, we have to really think about our senior citizens too, right? So we're going to have a large population of senior citizens living to be 100. There's no, no reason why you shouldn't live to 100. Because everybody that I know that died in my family died of cancer. That's it. So if we fix that, they would be alive today. Now, they wouldn't be mobile running marathons. So part of these planned communities in those communities will be uh, what I'll call, we call assisted living. But I want to change the word to good living. Good living centers where they exercise, where they get out in the sun, where they actually participate. And if they want to participate in the economy, they can have a job because they're smart people. And I think a lot of people want to be part of the part of the economy. So, but they're going to do it remotely, through the internet, through places like Zoom and Microsoft Meet, and you know whatever the other technologies are. Right, the elderly who want to work, they can work remotely. Yes. They yeah. And the reason why is because they have so much knowledge. So, if I was a company looking to do something or to create something. Um, by the way, just for this population, right, which is going to grow to be pretty big, you know, I would say you're going to have 150 million senior citizens over, you know, over 100 years old. Um, if I was building a product for them, I'd probably like to have a work group of half a million people helping me out. 
like, oh, we don't like that, we don't like that, whatever it is, that pillow doesn't work for us, that chair doesn't work, or whatever the... So, we, we, we have a lot of answers. This isn't the end of the world. Um, we're going to create great technologies, and that, that's the story. And so, just to backtrack a little bit on what you're saying about the uh, eco-communities and whatnot, and the migration out of urban areas, where do you think we went wrong, and why wasn't that something we thought about immediately with the massive amounts of land out there. Was it build up too much because that's where the opportunities were? Where did we go wrong well, with the planet destruction as well and all that? Was it greed? Was it the corruption? All of the above? So, you know, it's an interesting question. If you looked at it, if you're a student of history, and we all should be students of history now, that, you know, the population of the United States pre-World War I was like 60 million people. By the end of World War II, we had like 200 million people. And these people came from all over the world. And they came to the United States for different reasons, for opportunity. Uh, it's, it, it's, there's more space. But unfortunately, when you come to the United States, to own something, you have to have money. And you have to get a mortgage. And to this point, the traditional route to owning your own home is so difficult for the average person coming here that what they did was settle into apartment buildings. And smart developers, like here in New York, Sam LaFrac, LaFrac City, uh, Donald Trump's father, Donald Trump Sr., they built these track homes. So, well, they all live in these towers, right? You know, they call them cliff dwellers. It's like cavemen. And it, now it's multi-generational, meaning that the father lived there, and now the kids live there. And, and the kid, the, the children work at uh, Best Buy, and they make $40,000 a year working at Best Buy full-time. You can't buy anything in the New York area for $40,000. There's nothing. Um, so why, don't that, why doesn't that person move an hour north of New York City and own his own home with the help of the government, and now he's got equity, and he can do other things. He can go to college. He can train himself. There are whole new things that we're going to need to do. The medical field alone is going to require millions of people. Millions. It's, you know, to, just to get through all these things. And that will last for 10 years. Um, the inner cities, when you think of Manhattan, downtown, I, I'm in the belief that they'll figure their way out of it because it is a big world. Um, my own office is on the 85th floor of the World Trade Center. You know, it's a great place. You got great views. I happen to like it. Um, uh, but I make a good living. If I didn't make a good living, I wouldn't be there. I would be one hour north of the city in Orange County, New York, in a planned community, you know, using solar power. And if I needed to get to the city, I'd just jump on the train. The train goes right to Grand Central Station. So what we used to think was the boondocks, really isn't. It's kind of like right around the corner. Because here's the joke of it all. If I was driving my car in Manhattan today, to just get from 125th Street to Wall Street, it takes an hour and 10 minutes in traffic. The same amount of time I could be an hour north of the city in a rural area owning my own home. So if they still want to work in New York, they can still work in New York. But I think they're going to find uh, uh, better uses. The final thing, by the way, the final thing that's going to come from all of this we have a lot of uh, real estate in, in urban areas which need to be reused. 
And I'll give you an example of Detroit, um, where today in downtown Detroit, which used to be the home of General Motors and Ford, um, they've torn those factories down and they're actually farming. They're farming. And the reason why they're farming is the food we eat on a mass scale, I argue, is not good for you. It's filled with chemicals, it's frozen, it's unfrozen. Now, what they're modified genetically. So, what you could do with, we'll call it farm to table, because that's the, the word people use. I could actually, in Detroit, downtown Detroit, drive to a stand and buy all my fresh vegetables right out of the ground. That's in Detroit. So, I think we're going to see this explosion. When I say explosion, explosion of what I'll call micro farmers. They're going to be everywhere. They're going to be in every town. And you as a citizen of that town, is going to, it'll probably be a cooperative where the farmer will come to you and say, if you give me $10,000 or $5,000, I'll give you $5,000 worth of credit in, in, for the next five years in produce. So that allows him to start his business. And guess what? He gets to hire people to tend the fields, which is a good, which is a good job. He gets to hire mechanics to take care of the tractors. So we're going to recreate a lot of industries and things that we left behind, you know, 100 years ago. So, but they're going to be smaller, micro-farming, um, uh, smart homes, safe communities, um, and, and clean oceans. And then, then we might look back 50 year, years from now or 100 years from now as, wow, we saved ourselves. And one only has to look at the, the border of Canada and realize that 90% of the population is within five miles of the United States. Do you know how big Canada is? How much open land there is? What you could do there? So a lot of countries out there, especially North and South America, have an opportunity to create so much value and so many jobs and so many opportunities to live that whether there's a new pandemic, and you know, my, my, my heart tells me that uh, COVID-19 is just the opening of the Pandora's box. Right. So it seems like what you're saying is, the, you know, as serious as the pandemic is, this is kind of a wake-up call for a lot of things. And I think we can come out of this not only beating the pandemic, but also fixing a lot of the problems. And preparing for the next. And preparing, right. Preparing for the next, making sure something... Remember, COVID-19 was, was, was not a weaponized uh, uh, virus. It was just a virus. And somewhere along the line, we could blame everybody, but somehow it got out of a Canadian lab into a Chinese lab, and then somehow it got into the rest of the planet. And we're close to 2 million people dying. In the United States, two people die a minute from COVID. So it's really real. And we're not even yet near the surge on top of the surge. Um, so... I'm very hopeful for the future. It's going to take a lot of hands together, and, and the technology already exists, and we already built it um, to create a better life. And now, so about the pandemic, it obviously is serious. Now, what are your thoughts on the news and how they're interpreting it? I know fake news is actually not new, as you said to me one day. Um, and the numbers in the Vietnam War were exaggerated, and, and the scoreboard on CNN. What's your take on all that? Well, you know, I remember as a kid watching, you know, we only had three channels, and everybody watched the nightly news. That's the only place you can get your information. That and a newspaper. And I was a newspaper boy. 
So I had to get the newspaper out to 100 homes by 3.30 in the afternoon. I delivered it because that was the closest you were going to get to who won the Red Sox game last night, who what's happening in town. And then at night you would turn on Channel 7 and listen to the Brinkley Report. And the first thing he would do was give the stats on the deaths in Vietnam. And then on the top were, we killed 200,000 Viet Cong today, only 200 Americans died, and we know now they were all inflated and fake. So what did that cause? That caused us to continue to invest in things like arms in the military uh, and stockpile things that were inhumane by any standard. We didn't even know why we were there, right? And the, pre the, the, the press was the biggest proponent of it because they had something to report on instead of the weather. So the information's power. Information's power. So all I argue to people is there's a lot of sources of information out there today, an infinite number. And, you know, take the time to, to take the time to say this to yourself every time you read something, that they're trying to uh, sell me on their case, right? Where are the holes in this story? So of all the set, during election year, don't believe anything because everything is fake news. Everybody's, so just try to look through it and past it. And, and um, if you have an understanding of history, not only American history, but European history, ancient history, the Egyptians and the Romans, you'll see all these same stories we're dealing with today back then. Pandemics, overthrows of government, war. So there's so much to learn from history. So spend some time on it because you'll, you'll kind of laugh and say, oh, that's happening today. So students of history are, are the ones that, uh, and we all could be students of history. And um, so going back a little bit to technology and how much we've advanced and now we have social media and how powerful it is and how the pros and cons, technology has connected us so much, but it's also divided us so much. So how do we work around that? So I think, you know, I think if you look at history, you know, and I look at it from the beginning of the town crier, the guy that stood in the middle of the town square every day and yelled out what was happening. Who knew if he was telling the truth or what was the truth? Or, And then the, the press allowed us to print a lot of different pamphlets. In fact, one of the great Americans, Ben Franklin, used to print a number of pamphlets that were under pseudonyms. It wasn't even his own name. And he was on both sides of every story. So we didn't even know what we were reading. Most Americans were reading stuff that was fake. Um, and then we went into uh, yellow journalism, Hearst and the wars of yellow journalism, where they were starting wars that were fake. You know, who sunk the main in Cuba? We attacked a country and took it over on fake news, okay? And then we go on and on and on. And we get to our new, new technology, which is no different than the town crier and the printing press and whatnot. And it's called Twitter, uh, Jack Dorsey, it's called, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, whatever. I guarantee you this. In 100 years, no one will ever remember their names. They will be lost in history. Because they're just part of the puzzle of human beings who are inquisitive and need a place to meet and read and talk. And I don't know what the next um, wave will be. I think it's going to be more local because as... People migrate and get into more smaller communities. Um, they're going to be more interested in what's happening there locally, and it'll be a larger schematic, right? The U.S. will be the U.S. And listen, 
I think we should have a strong military. I believe in democracy that we people vote. And you know, how about this, by the way, for for voting? You know, if I if I, if I had a five thousand home development an hour north of New York City, pretty easy to count five thousand ballots with trustworthy people, and I just send them the, the numbers. So you encourage people to vote locally more? That's what I didn't understand. You know what? We always did, by the way. My dad, my dad ran for mayor, one of the largest cities in Connecticut, and lost by eight votes. And that was in the 1970s. And um, everything was always done by hand. You walked in. By the way, take some. T- you got to take some time off if you want to vote. Mailing in ballots six months before is a, just a, is ridiculous. And that's just a new. That was just brand new. So we have to go back to um, voting locally. And having local people report in the precincts. And by the way, in, in most states, that's what they still do, and it worked perfectly. Where it didn't work is when they have boxes full of ballots that are wet. Um, and you know, one of the states that really fixed it was Florida. In the 2000 election, you remember, the difference between Al Gore and George Bush was like 600 votes. That's it. That's what decided the presidency. The difference, so it was based off these things called hanging chads. They didn't know if the guy pushed one thing through the paper like, or the other thing. And they finally decided, and Al Gore decided, he could have fought it for 10 years. He just said, it's over. You're president. The other one was Kennedy versus Nixon. The margin of error was literally zero. Like, they were tied. And Dick Nixon said, you know, I don't have the resources, the money, or the power the Kennedys have, so I'm just going to walk away. But I'm coming back. And he did. He became president in 1968. So, um, you know, there, there are issues. But the, the way to get around them is just to go into a polling place. And I don't know why you, you don't present your driver's license. I, I, I can't. But I have to get my license to do everything. So they can just look at it and say, yes, that's an official document. Your water bill, your heating bill, your, your whatever, something with your name on it has the address that they have. And sign away. Vote. Now, any thoughts on um, the BLM movement, the police, um, is defunding the answer, is more training the answer? Um, how do we make people feel safe when they don't? Because police are there to help us. They are. They're there to answer. And, it's, you know, there's two things. The Black Lives Matter movement, which is, you know, an important movement because in my life I've seen, um, and I was very young at the time when Martin Luther King was killed, we saw the burning of the cities. Now, I lived in a city that was burnt, and they never rebuilt it from 1968. So, and I've, I volunteered. The first thing I did when I got out of college, I came to New York City, and I volunteered in Harlem at the Harlem Boys Club. And when I walked to 110th Street, when I walked to 110th Street in, Sixth, uh, in First Avenue, I saw things I couldn't imagine that were happening in 1989. So, it's a problem. You know, we've left behind a big part of our citizenry. They're citizens. We need to reconnect. We need to reconnect. And the way to reconnect, I think, is to build these planned communities and allow them to own homes, That's just like I do. And what they'll find is, and we'll find is, having equity and, 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 and wealth, that's where wealth is created, by the way. Most wealth is created in the home. Uh, and multi-generational. Uh, that... A lot of those issues will go away. 
but we need to pay attention to it. We haven't. You know, the first time we saw it was the Rodney King riots in 1990. This time we saw it even bigger. When it comes to police, you know, I've noticed I love the police. I'm a backer of the police. And I live in New York City where the police are much different than outside. They're much more professional. They understand how to handle situations. Uh, but when you get into the rural areas and outside, it seems like the police have decided to abandon training and exchange that with weaponry, like massive weaponry. And this action, this, this idea of I act first, I pull trigger first. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's right and sometimes it's wrong, but that's not how you police, right? That's not how people police. And post 9-11, if you just track it historically, local police departments were given a trillion dollars worth of equipment. In fact, in our own little town, we have a, a military boat that, you know, they use, they could use at Iwo Jima to, you know, in World War II. Why? To protect the yachts and the, and the, and the, and the water skiers in the summer? No, it was just because it was funded and given away. M16s, you know, in a car, you gotta be kidding me. Like, as you escalate things, everything gets escalated, right? And I think we need to not defund, we need to de-escalate. And a lot of that is just like when the police have a drive and they give you hundred dollars for your rifle. I think police start; they should have a big drive for the police, and they need to hand in all these weapons that uh, kill people so efficiently that they're really not needed. Pulling the guy over for a traffic stop, and I think police have to make better decisions around. Do I need to escalate this one? You know, he, he's got an expired tag or his license isn't working. Does that need to be a shooting? Now, I personally have been pulled over by police, and, been get, and I'm white as they come, and I've been given an attitude I can't believe. Um, you know, really, really rude attitude. And I pay taxes, I live in the town, so this isn't just black people. They're, they're ones who are getting shot, by the way. But just the way they treat you. So it's a retraining. And oh, and by the way, it's not only retraining, it's finding different people. For some reason, we've attracted people to this profession that uh, probably wouldn't pass most tests around, you know, mental aptitude, number one, being able to control a situation. So put them through it. Like, put them through a little class. And you'll find them, by the way. They're guys that are trigger happy. Get rid of them. Um, that's it. And uh, so now just... This section will talk about direct advice to a son and, and uh, me as a college graduate. I'm trying to navigate these waters. You know, I've I've never seen anything like this. I've only been around 25 years, and so it's kind of hard to, for me to figure out. Wow, like where do I go from here? So if you can give some reassurance to the younger generation, what would what should other fathers, mothers, mentors say to their kid who is just starting life? Where's the opportunity? What should they do? Well, I think that um, there's a couple of areas. One is the future is bright. It, it, it's more, it's brighter than it was when I graduated. You know, I graduated into a major recession in the United States. There were no jobs. And I got very lucky that it worked. But then I got lucky because then the economy lifted up and we got out of the storm and, and things went right for a while. Now we're back. We have, we have, we have really tough times. So in the, in, the, in, the, in the fog of war, in the fog of war, you see opportunities. And there are two that come out really, really kind of, you know, that face me 
so easily. One is medicine, you know, medical field. We need more people in the medical field. We need more nurses, male and female. We, we need more PAs that work in the hospital to assist and can do everything a doctor can um, to help people. We need more doctors, right? And, and we need uh, better hospitals. You know, the fact that Los Angeles County is out of emergency beds, there's something wrong. So there's, there's direct medicine, and then there's medical management. It's like going into the management of medicine, like being a professional. Um, and the, third, the, the second one, I think, is to think out of the box and to say, you know, I'm going to have to go do this myself, right? I'm going to start my own business. And, you know, I just read recently that Amazon has a, uh, a um, distribution business where they set you up in business with trucks and give you all their technology so you can help deliver the trillions of packages. By the way, it's not going down, it's going up. How many packages have we delivered? So to be in that transportation business with a partner like Amazon could be incredible, like for anybody. And you, so you start with one truck. You're going to wake up one day and there's going to be 100 trucks, 30, uh, 200 trucks to your parking lot. The third one is around home technology because people won't be able to afford to run their homes like because you know for a lot of different reasons so technology will help them run their homes but they're going to need technicians to do that and when i say technicians smart people who can come into the home and fix a problem with the solar roof with the hvac system that you replaced in the basement with the the, the, the whatever it is that you built it to this home and they're going to be on call 24 7 so they're going to be your new plumber right and the last i checked the only plumber i know is a family member who has a million dollars worth of collectible cars so plumbers do very well people who do things on demand do very well um and don't be afraid to look at other jobs you don't have to be in finance no you don't. you don't and the other one was i thought was a great idea was around cooking you know people don't want to cook anymore right so why not create a what I'll call a hub of cooking. Take an old building, get 10 chefs together who couldn't afford to have their own restaurants, nor can they have a restaurant because of the restrictions, and have them cook in a giant room together. An Italian, a Chinese, a Greek guy. So you just call one number, and you can say, yeah, I'm looking for Italian. They can switch you over, and then within a half hour, you got the greatest Italian meal sitting on your table. So those several ideas are good and promising. And those are a metaphor for, you know, most businesses you want to build up and it's easier said than done, but no one's going to help you. You do. And a lot of these don't require a lot of capital. You can do it yourself. Buy an old van. You know, all you need to cook is a table and a refrigerator. So it's going to be a bright future. Our economy is going to grow. And the final piece uh, is about global peace. And we live in a world today that has been ginned up and, and hopped up on steroids because of the press. Remember the yellow press that started the war with Spain in 1900 that took over Cuba. Um, I see a lot of that today with China. Now, I'm not a fan of China's government because it's lack lacks of freedom. I love the Chinese people. I've been there a number of times. I really think they're incredible people. I think at, the, at their heart, um, they want to be Americans. You know, everybody wants to be American. Right, and you, so you're saying people are addicted to this information and what's in front of yeah. their face. So 
that kind of goes into mental health and how important that is for a healthy society, right? So hopefully we get back to traveling and we get to go visit China and they get to visit us and we get to see them. And, you know, I, I can tell you this. If I quizzed a Chinese person, they'd want to be Elvis Presley, Brad Pitt, Bruce Springsteen. But if you asked an American what Chinese person they want to be, there's no one. So we have a lock on culture because we are the coolest people on the planet. We make the coolest cars. We make the coolest jets. We make the coolest everything. And we want to share it with the world. We really do want to share it with the world. And that creates peace, by the way. Because what's better than music and entertainment and to really kind of calm everybody down? Now, we haven't had that since COVID. So some president's got to sit down with Xi, right, who's now you know, chairman forever at China, and say, let's draw some lines, and let's be friends. Just like we did when we were kids. This is your neighborhood, that's my neighborhood. You know, like, you stay on your street, and I stay on my street. When we were little kids, and if not, we're going to go to, we're going to fight each other. We don't want wars of the future, because they're going to be pretty ugly. Any uh, final, we covered a lot of topics. Any final points you want to touch on? Listen, don't lose faith. The future is right around the corner. And there is one last piece that I think all of us need to be aware of. Is the biggest health issue that we, we face in America today, in the world, is mental health. And um, so, you know, I've lost a number of friends to suicide uh, in, the, in the past year. And I do believe it's part of the, this changing environment we're going through. So don't be afraid and don't think it's a, it's a, uh, you know, a, a, a bad thing. If you're feeling down, if you feel depressed for more than one day, go seek help. And you'll get it and you'll be amazed what it can do. Thanks very much, people.